Welcome to the 15th edition of the Panama interview series, where we discuss topics regarding foreign direct investment in Latin America and the Caribbean. We are streaming live from the capital city of the Republic of Panama. The Panama interview series is produced by Bico Legal and Compliance Consulting, LLC, a Miami Domicile Limited Liability Corporation with offices in downtown Miami and Panama City, Panama. Uh, we provide international, commercial, and transactional legal and regulatory compliance advice and related services to manufacturers and brand owners that seek to boost profit and hedge domestic risk through international distribution in the USA and in Latin America and the Caribbean. My name is Anthony Robinson, and I am managing member of Bico Legal and Compliance Consulting. In this edition of the Panama interview series, we will discuss the Americas Partnership for Economic Prosperity, APEP for short, and more generally, the future of US-Latin American relations. To that end, we are honored to have as our guest, Daniel F. Rundy, the Senior Vice President at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS in Washington, DC, uh, where he is the Director of the Project on Prosperity and Development. We have several topics to cover in only 30 minutes. Accordingly, please put your questions in the chat and I will submit them to Mr. Rundy afterwards. So let's jump in. Uh, good morning or good afternoon, Mr. Rundy. Welcome. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks so much. I'm really happy to be here, Anthony. I was in Panama City a couple of weeks ago. What a beautiful place. I love Panama, and I'm always inspired to come visit such a beautiful country. It's a wonderful place. Well, now you have uh, a friend here in Panama, and uh, just call us when you get to Tocumen, and we'll, uh, we'll, make, uh, we'll show you around. Uh, you know, um, I had a great meeting. The Chinese food is great there. There's diverse seafood's awesome. Love, I love the vibe. Love it. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of natural resources. One of the best things about Panama is we're not in the hurricane loop. So, Ian oh. is, is <laughs> and, you know, we have occasional earthquake, but nothing, uh, you know, our natural disasters are, are, are a little compared to the, to the rest of the region. But before we jump into the topic of today's conversation, I wanted to take just the opportunity to briefly touch on your thoughts on the future replacement for the president of the Inter-American Development Bank. Because yesterday in The Hill, uh, which is the premier source online for policy and political news, uh, The Hill published an opinion piece that you authored, which is entitled, Trump's pick for head of IDB fired, we need a consensus replacement. Um, it so happens that you opine in that piece that in addition to candidates from Chile, Mexico, and, and Honduras, several Panamanians would be good candidates, in your opinion, namely Isabel uh, St. Malo, the former vice president, uh, Carmen Gisela Vergara, the current head of Pro Panama and former commerce minister, and Ramon Martinez, the current Panamanian ambassador and, and former minister of commerce. Uh, so the question is, uh, what are the competitive advantages that a Panamanian candidate has over the field? And who do you think will be selected uh, as the next president of the IDB? There are many excellent potential candidates from Panama who could represent Panama and represent the region so well as president of the Inter-American Development Bank. I think that Isabel Santmalo, who's the former vice president of Panama, is a globally recognized figure and globally respected. She would be a, a wonderful person to run the Inter-American Development Bank. I, I had a chance to meet uh, Carmen Gisela Vergara when I was uh, in Panama a couple of weeks ago. 
I was really impressed. She's a former minister of commerce. She used to be on the board of Cabay. So she knows about multilateralism. She's had a senior level positions and she's got a strategic vision for the region and for Panama. I was really impressed with her. I've also been very impressed with Panama's uh, ambassador here in the United States. Uh, I think that former Minister Martinez, Ambassador Martinez is a, would be a very excellent pick to run it. My view is that um, it will likely go, there will be, I think, a significant amount of pressure from a variety of quarters to support a woman to be the next president of the Inter-American Development Bank. There has not been a woman president of the Inter-American Development Bank in its more than 50 years. Uh, I also think that given sort of the world that we're in and the preferences of a number of the major shareholders, including the bite of the United States, I think there'll be a preference for a candidate from a, a country that has a government that is has a progressive, a generally progressive but responsible inclination. And so what I mean by that are countries that maybe sort of socially democratic or center left might be characterized as center left, but also are not necessarily, how shall I describe it, exporting global problems to the rest of the region or to the United States. So are they, you know, so in my mind, that leads me to the new government in Honduras the new gov relatively new government in Chile, the uh, government in Panama, and the, uh, pre the, pre the government in Mexico. So in my mind, if I look at those four countries and I go through it in the piece, I talk about different potential candidates. I think that it, you know, ru running for the presidency of the Inter-American Development Bank is running a political campaign. And so the candidate themselves can't put themselves forward. Their government has to put themselves forward. So you can talk about all sorts of names and all sorts of candidates, but ultimately your government as the shareholder of the institution has to put your name forward. You cannot put your name forward. Then your government, your finance ministry, your foreign ministry, or the head of state of your country has to like you enough and support you enough to pick up the phone and make 10, 20, 30, 40 phone calls maybe make available transport, government transport, to support you and make 10 or 20 international trips in very short notice to get in front of shareholders to, to pitch them on your potential candidacy. All that is to say that um, any my view is, it's generally the case that candidates come from within a government themselves that have a strong relationship with the minister of finance of a country, the minister, of foreign affairs of a country and that has a good enough relationship with the head of state that they're willing to spend some international political capital and time on your candidacy. So that leads that leads me to believe that someone who's already currently serving in a government or recently having served in a current administration are the most likely candidates. If you were a betting man, who would you put your money on? Well, I really like a former Mexican ambassador uh, Martha Barsana, who is a former Mexican ambassador to the United States, and she also represented a number of, uh, inter was representative of a number of international organizations. She was also ambassador to both Kazakhstan and Russia, I think. Uh, I, again, I'm very, uh, I think the candidates from Panama are very impressive and very, very interesting. But I think that if President AMLO were to decide to support a candidate from Mexico, I think a, a, a potential candidate would be somebody like former Ambassador Martha Barsana, 
then I think the other likely candidate would be is if, if somebody, if whoever is really close to President Boric of Chile, and if that person was willing, you know, if President Boric was willing to spend his limited political capital on that candidate. So the obvious female candidate comes to mind is uh, Michelle Bachelet. Now, the other thing to think about is age issues. So there is, in theory, a mandatory retirement somewhere in the 60s. I think it's like 63, 65, or 67, something like that, for the Inter-American Development Bank. I'm sure you could get a waiver, but it's it's not necessarily a great look to tell all the staff, you've got to retire at X age, but we're going to put somebody in at three or five years older than that and, and just sort of ignore it. So so I do think there's that is an issue. So um, I think ultimately I would look for a candidate either from Chile or from Mexico, depending on you know how energetic those governments are in supporting a potential candidacy. Right. The article in the Hill, I think it dropped yesterday, uh, if not this morning. And, and the Hill is a is a great source of uh, <clears throat> the political news. And uh, Mr. Rundy, uh, I think you had another piece out today. So you're on top of all of the timely matters. I, I definitely encourage and recommend uh, following you on the Hill. Uh, with regards to the uh, topic of today, uh, the America's Partnership for Economic Prosperity, uh, the ninth summit of the Americas took place in June of this year in Los Angeles. And following the summit, the U.S. Department of State published on its website a post entitled Five Things to Know from the Summit of the Americas, which summarized, uh, you know, the following takeaways. Okay, so uh, one, the Crisis Forward Initiative focuses on solving urban issues through job creation and innovation. The action plan on health and resilience in the Americas will strengthen health systems and make them more equitable. The Americas Partnership for Economic Prosperity will create jobs and more resilient supply chains. The U.S.-Caribbean Partnership to address the climate crisis 2030 will help mitigate the impact of climate change on the Caribbean. And finally, the Los Angeles Declaration on Migration and Protection will address the unprecedented migration crisis in the region. Um, all of these topics, each of these topics deserve to be the focus of its own LinkedIn Live event, and, and we would be honored to host you again to cover them. But this afternoon, we're speaking uh, with you, Mr. Rundy, about the APEP, because in June of 2022, you authored an editorial entitled Taking the America's Partnership for Economic Prosperity as an Opening Big Bid to Go Bigger. Uh, the Biden administration states that the purpose of the APEP is to drive economic recovery and growth for our hemisphere and improve economic conditions for working people. And your article posits the question, if the United States, quote unquote, wants to engage with the region and is not prepared to spend political and capital, political capital and free trade deals, what can it offer? So accordingly, Mr. Runny, the first question is whether the APEP is sufficient alone to achieve its objectives or are additional policy initiatives needed? So thanks so much for asking that question. I think that uh, I, I took the Biden administration at the word vice, vice, then Vice President Biden made something like eight trips to Central America, and I think an eight additional trips to the rest. I think he made something like 16 trips to the Western Hemisphere as Vice President. So he's very committed to the region. Uh, and I think, unfortunately, I think the the question, the constraints that were given to the staff were, please come up with a deliverable on economic issues for the hemisphere, but please don't talk about additional trade agreements, which I think is very, very unfortunate. So 
I think what APEP is, is trying to answer the questions like what could we offer within the constraints of not using uh, the context of, of a trade agreement. So I think we should say, okay, let's start with that and take them seriously. Uh, but then I think we should go a little bit further on a number of different fronts. So for example, I think we ought to, I think it would be great if we had a free trade agreement with Uruguay uh, and with uh, Ecuador. They both are asking for it. We have great governments there. We should support them. You're not seeing a lot of political movement on that. I think it's unfortunate. We've let the uh, what's called um, Trade Promotion Authority, which is the, known as Fast Track, uh, expire. And it's something we ought to revisit in the next Congress. So we need to, I think, revisit potentially free trade agreements with Ecuador and Uruguay. I think we ought to do it. I think we ought to re revisit the vision of former Democratic President, President Clinton, when he hosted the first Summit of the Americas in 1994, which was the vision of a hemispheric-wide trade agreement. I think we should go back to thinking about that, that may be too ambitious in the short run, but over time, I think we ought to continue to hold that up as, as a goal in the medium to longer term. In the medium term, we ought to aspire for a digital trade agreement across the Western Hemisphere uh, as something that should be achievable. I think we also ought to be thinking about, given that there's been this change in leadership at the Inter-American Development Bank, uh, there, I think there's enough challenges in the region and the Inter-American Development Bank is the most important collective action vehicle that we have that under the right leadership, we ought to consider and under the right uh, political agreement in terms, for example, adding new shareholders to the Inter-American Development Bank, considering some sort of a additional capital increase under the right political circumstances. So I think there's a series of things we should take APEP as a starting point. And I think it's unfortunate. I think it they had a number of constraints. And I think that we should start with that. I think there was a, tempt there was a temptation to sort of rubbish it. And so I think we should say, okay, we're gonna take you seriously. There's a series of things that you're, you're pointing to. We can work within those constraints, but then I think we should start coloring outside the lines and, and lift our sights a little bit higher and use that as an opening an opening and think of it like a coloring book and they've they've put some pretty limited lines and we're coloring it we ought to think about how we can color outside those lines speaking of the tpa which you said lapsed in july of 2022 the last two uh, recent rounds of the tpa authorization uh were contested and partisan uh do you think that the biden administration will fight to reauthorize the uh the tpa so i worry that they're not going to be willing to spend a lot of political capital on this. At the same time, there's going to be a change from uh, the Democratic Party to the Republican Party in the House of Representatives. So I do think there may be a willingness on the part of some folks in the Republican Party to, to explore uh, revisiting TPA and, in essence, bringing it to the, the Biden administration next year. And uh, does the absence of the TPA reduce the potential success of the APEP? Is there, is there a possibility of the APEP being successful without the TPA? You know, I think there's a series of components to what APEP is, is seeking to do that don't require uh, TPA. So they've talked about uh, strengthening, using, think, thinking about things like uh, uh, digital agreements or trade facilitation, um, there's a series of things that are, are not requiring uh, additional legislation or spending political capital in the Congress that are referenced in APEP. So I think it's very limiting, but I think you can do a number of things within the framework of APEP without having to get trade promotion authority. 
Um, APEP mentions the possibility of a capital increase of the IDB invests, which, which organization invests in private businesses in conjunction with the multilateral investment fund. Um, is a capital increase of the IDB invest efficient alone, or is a capital increase for the entirety of the IDB necessary? So I think it's, I believe that they, the Biden administration wanted to dem come to, cap to Los Angeles saying something about the most important regional collective action vehicle, which was the Inter-American Development Bank. But they were very unhappy that the president of the Inter-American Development Bank was a Trump appointee, that, which had broken with sort of 50 years of tradition of having a Latin American president and a number two who happened to be a US citizen. And so as a way of signaling displeasure with the current, the arrangement, the leadership arrangement, they were saying, while also saying something about the IDB, we will support the subsidiary institution of IDB Invest, which has its own separate board and has its own separate shareholdings, but we are not going to contemplate now a capital increase for the Inter-American Development Bank. I believe that with this change in the political dynamic and the leadership dynamic at the Inter-American Development Bank, I believe that the Biden administration will be open to the idea of revisiting a capital increase under the right political circumstances for the entire Inter-American Development Bank. Uh, thank you for that answer. In another article on the Hill that you recently published, uh, you opined that uh, the IDB should act as an enabler in Latin America's efforts to be a, a beneficiary of nearshoring. Um, what are some of the examples of ways in which the IDV can help Latin America take advantage of the nearshoring opportunities caused by the recent global supply chain disruptions? So I think that we want to use multilateral development banks like the Inter-American Development Bank, and we ought to use foreign aid by institutions like USAID to provide, you know, what WD-40 is, it's that, that spray you use for sort of like making things a little bit easier to, to move stuff around. So it's a it's like an oil-based lubricant for, for metals. We need, we need to use foreign aid like WD-40 to help shift global supply chains away from mainland China. I think as a result of the COVID pandemic, I think people are re rethinking having a singular dependency on mainland China. When they threaten to cut off our medicines and they threaten to cut off our ventilators, those were fighting words, those were grounds for divorce. So I think there's gonna be uh, an interest in finding ways to help shift that. So I think foreign aid and institutions like the Inter-American Development Bank do any number of different things to help be that WD-40 to move, to shift uh, supply chains. So for example, so there's a whole rubrics of stuff called trade capacity building or trade facilitation. These are in essence, foreign assistance and technical assistance and advice and finance to finance any number, to enable a number of different things in the trade space. So it can mean things like changing laws and rules around things like intellectual property or property rights or clarity about strengthening rule of law or contracts, strengthening contracts, reducing corruption, making a country more attractive, confronting issues such as whether a country's on a fat of gray list or not, which I know is an issue that's important to our, our, my friends in Panama. Those are all things along those lines. Also, it can finance things like strengthening airports and ports and airports and infrastructure investments. It could be supporting and enabling investments in the digital infrastructure that you can have a lot of manufacturing and a lot of other activities require 
um, significant higher levels of digital use than they did five or 10 years ago. I think, for example, the CAFTA DR or even the U.S. Panama Free Trade Agreement didn't really fully contemplate the levels of digital uh, activity that we're having, you know, you know, many years, you know, even 10, 10 plus years later uh, from uh, from where we are today. So we ought to be using the IDB and also things like workforce development and training so that we can get folks to say we have a qualified workforce. So Panama, which is a wonderful place for nearshoring. I think it's got great rule of law. It's a stable democracy. It's beautiful. It's got a lot of cultural offerings. The food is great. The people are great. It's very diverse. They're multilingual. They're open to other folks from other parts of the world. A very friendly, investment-friendly climate. So I think that Panama is one of the great places and one of the great uh, one of the organization places where there ought to be sort of the ground zero of nearshoring ought to be in Panama. It's got a great got a great airport. You have a new second terminal. Copa is a great uh, uh, in, you know tarjeta de presentacion for Panama. It's a private company, but it really is a great uh, unofficial ambassador for the country of Panama. The wonderful right. airport. dollar-based, dollar uh, uh, stable uh, constitutional democracy. Uh, more than 35 free trade zones, uh, which yeah. I know is a big part of, uh, you know, so you're singing to the choir uh, here. And, and I wish we had more time to go into that, but we only have a half hour. So, you know, the last topic is just the future of U.S. Latin American relations generally, where we're going. In August of, of this year, um, you have your own podcast entitled Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy with Dan Rundy, which podcast we strongly recommend that people follow. Uh, you had a discussion with Cynthia Arnson uh, about the future of U.S. Latin American relations. And Ms. Arnson opined that the future is not necessarily one that's going to be positive. She uh, painted a picture of, quote unquote, refrain on the part of the U.S. government and opined that, uh, you know, U.S. Latin American relations will be more fractured. It will be in a, a fractured hemisphere, she said with more domestic constraints on the ability of the U.S. government to play a positive role. Do you agree with Ms. Arnson's uh, forecast? Ms. Arnson is a very, very smart and very experienced observer of Latin American affairs. I have a lot of respect for Ms. Arnson. I think it's very possible that that is a future we could have. I think we ought to do everything in our power to try and prevent such a future from happening. I think it requires American leadership and involvement I think that the Biden, I was really pleased to see that the Biden administration was able to host uh, the Summit of the Americas in Los Angeles earlier this year. I thought that was a good step. I think there's a number of very able and well-meaning people in the American government who, are, who understand that this is a future we don't want to see happen. I think that we are having a strengthened Inter-American Development Bank, more engagement with the OAS, um, standing up for democracy and pushing it back against autocrats in places like Nicaragua. Uh, I think is a part of that as well. I think that we have a shared future in the hemisphere, and I think that um, if we are, if we work together, and if we work towards a shared vision of the future of the hemisphere, we may be able to prevent such a future from happening. So I have a lot of respect for her her opinions and views. Uh, it's very, it's possible that such a future could come about. I think we all ought to work our darndest to do our best to try and prevent such a thing from happening. There's a lot of capable and good leaders 
around the hemisphere who would like to not see that happen. We should work with those leaders both in business and civil society, educational institutions, religious leaders, and of course, political leaders. There's a lot of uh, great, good political leaders. I think there, you know, countries like Panama have great, you know, very good governments and very capable people who have joined their government. And so I think we ought to do our best to, to work together to try and stop such a future from happening, though I recognize it's a possible future. One of her observations was that, uh, you know, the U.S. only pays attention in times of crisis to the region um, and that we, the United States, does not consistently have something to offer um, other than, um, you know, uh, you know, talking about uh, why the, the, the region shouldn't be working with other competitive uh, forces. And that I've read and resonated and heard in other areas. Uh, does that ring true to you? Look, I think that uh, the U.S. does suffer from ADD, especially in Central America, and I'd include Panama. So in Central America and the Caribbean, we have, unfortunately, uh, a significant case of ADD where we have only, you know, it is true, she's right. Uh, I think we ought to do our best to, to counteract that in a couple of ways. One is having significant trade arrangements like CAFTA-DR or the U.S.-Panama Free Trade Agreement help lock us in and engage us in a deeper way. I also think making sure that we send excellent and able senior people who are effective to represent the United States. For example, we do not currently have a U.S. ambassador in Panama. We haven't had an ambassador for four years. It's embarrassing. I'm embarrassed as an American. And I know that the my view is, is that the current uh, nominee that's been put forward by the Biden administration has been confirmed once by the U.S. Senate. Uh, I understand why some U.S. senators might have some qualms about uh, confirming the nominee, but my view is if she's been confirmed once for an, um, and entrusted for the U.S. ambassadorship, she ought to be, we should not dilly-dally and we ought to go ahead and, and confirm her again because I think this has gone on too long. Last question, um, one of uh, another observation of Ms. Arnton is that the Latin America, unlike other regions of the world, is not a priority across the U.S. government uh, in all agencies, meaning uh, there are certain agencies that focus on, the, on Latin America, but it's not a priority for every aspect of the U.S. government, unlike other areas of the country, which was surprising to hear given the size and, and importance of the region and, and the proximity to the U.S. and the potential. Um, is, is that true and, and, and how can that be uh, resolved? Well, look, I think, you know, as I said, I have a lot of respect for Ms. Arnson and I, I take her observations very, very seriously. I do think it's difficult when you have a region that's largely at peace. There are challenges in the region and it does require, you know, the U.S. has a shared future with the region and we need to be a, a reliable friend and partner. And sometimes we're a little bit ADD and could be a better friend and partner at times, that there are just a lot of distractions in the world. There's a lot of challenges in the world going on right now. There's the Ukraine crisis. There's the global food crisis. There's challenges in places like the Middle East or North Korea. And so as a result, those sorts of shiny objects of crises absorb a lot of policymakers' time. So that she's right in that sense. But it does mean that we need to ensure that we have capable, able, senior, effective people who are entrusted with being, you know, representing the United States long-term significant and sustained interests in the region because we have a shared future in the Western Hemisphere. Thank you very much for your time. We're going to be following you on the Hill and in your podcast and anywhere else we can find you. 
Uh, Thanks take a care. lot. All I right. hope to get down to Panama again soon. It's nice, nice to do this. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Take care. Goodbye. Bye.